What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. We got a very strong reaction to a story we published over the weekend that discerned in some school districts between people who oppose critical race theory and those who are more focused on educating children. People want it for their districts. We didn't have them for all. It's a difficult challenge, but we are seeking to expand it before Election Day. We'll see how we do. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with the cast of regulars, Laura Johnston, Leila Tassi, and Lisa Garvin. It's a Tuesday, one week from Election Day. It's all going to be over soon. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I, I... Round <laughs> one will be soon week. enough. <laughs> yeah, well, then next year we have a whole mess of elections, but this one has been a bit long and tortured, and some of the incumbent city council people are kind of losing their minds as they yeah. get close to the end, thinking they might lose. I even had a note from Mike Polancic saying, why didn't you interview me for my endorsement? It's oh, like, for heaven's sake. You won by like 80%, <laughs> man. There's no contest. <laughs> so we did the story about your enduring popularity. Stop. Stop bothering us. Okay, let's begin. <laughs> <laughs> when did we learn? What did we learn from the depositions of Ohio's top elected officials in the gerrymandering case before the state Supreme Court? Or Johnson, we talked yesterday how, about how we were pouring through many, many pages of depositions. It's a very disturbing picture that has emerged of the failure of Mike DeWine and his fellow Republicans in giving Ohio what was promised, fair districts. Yeah, this just solidifies that this was the Bob Cup and Matt Huffman show. And the process that voters approved was meant to promote collaboration and bipartisanship. But in practice, it unfolded exactly, well, close to exactly what it used to be, the much criticized older districting process where a handful of politicians and staff with ambivalent support of the members of their own party pushed through new maps with limited outside input. They didn't listen to the public. They didn't listen to the Democrats. They, they had staffers and outside contractors working on this, and they did it the way that they wanted to do it. And so, yes, uh, Jeremy Pelzer, Laura Hancock, and Sabrina Eaton went through hundreds and hundreds of pages of depositions yesterday and these three redistricting lawsuits in the Ohio Supreme Court. And basically, we're hearing from all seven members of the commission in these depositions. Um, Amelia Sykes basically said that she... They tried to work out an agreement with a plan that they could support, but no one wanted to negotiate. And that um, the Secretary of State, Frank LaRose, Keith Faber, and Governor DeWine didn't want to break ranks with the GOP leaders, even though they really had no role in this at all. And we can get into this later, but um, the governor's deposition was pretty interesting, too. I know I, what bothers me about this, though, is, is that you did have 70 percent of the voters vote to bring in a system that they thought the people involved would work in in good faith. When you name a seven member commission to draw the lines and set up the process by which they do it, I think there's an expectation that the people who have asked you to elect them will fulfill their roles and they never had any intention of fulfilling their roles. Mike DeWine never did anything to get involved in this process. He just basically ignored the will of the voters. I don't know how you can look people in the eye and claim you're an honest, decent public servant when you won't do your job on one of the most vital 
things going. And he got testy in his deposition, as you said. And, you know, why was he using a personal email to communicate instead of his government email? Was he trying to hide it from the public? I I would think the politicians have learned their lessons about email by this point. But I don't know. I mean, at one point he decided that he was going to hand this whole thing over to his his lieutenant governor, John Husted, but then Husted didn't really get involved. And the deposition got contentious. One of the plaintiff's attorneys accused the governor of, quote, meandering and non-responsive answers. And DeWine's lawyer, who came from the attorney general's office, said that remark was entirely unprofessional. But then the attorney told DeWine, you don't have the right to interrupt me. And the attorney general lawyer sought back, you're not in the position to lecture the governor. But he seems well, like let me was... ask this, though. I mean, anybody that watched Wine with DeWine saw DeWine meandering. I don't know that you can say that's <laughs> intentional. It just might be the way he talks. Well, that's true. But it, it does sound like he was very hands off with this process. I believe most of the folks only saw these districts the night before they were released to the public. And he probably doesn't like being deposed about how he didn't do his job. But did but did they flat out ask him, did you feel a responsibility to do the job that the voters placed on you? I mean, did he offer any explanation for why he completely abdicated his responsibilities here? I have not read the entire deposition, but he did say he thought what they did approve was did comply with the Ohio Constitution, which I'm not sure how you say that with a straight face. I mean, right after they passed, even I don't remember if it was LaRose or him, we're saying this is going to be up to the courts. We're not sure this is is constitutional. No, but, no, he said it. He, yeah. he, he showed them. But that's why he's a key witness in this case. It's why his son shouldn't be sitting on it. The Supreme Court Justice Pat DeWine, who refuses to recuse himself. What, what else did we learn? What did uh, Cop and Huffman say? Did they just double down on this is fair? This is good. This isn't right. Well, they're, they're blaming re- the Democrats for not negotiating with them. But I'd like to point out that two Republican staffers composed these legislative maps. One is Ray De Rossi. He's a Senate GOP budget director. He played a key role in drawing the gerrymandered districts a decade ago. And he drew the maps in his statehouse office, which shares a wall with Huffman's office. And there's a guy named Blake Springetti, who's the House GOP's finance director. And he worked in an empty floor of the state-owned William Green building in downtown Columbus. So this is like the exact opposite of the public meetings where they were supposed to be taking input and drawing maps from what people were telling them. But I want to go back to something you just said, because I want people to understand how preposterous it is. They said the Democrats would not budge from their position that the maps need to reflect the political breakdown of Ohio, which is what the Constitution says. Correct. So basically they're saying because the Democrats were trying to follow the Constitution, we found them to be obstinate and we ignored them. I mean, think about what think about that. We they basically said if the Democrats had broken the law, had violated the Constitution, we'd have made a deal. I mean, right. Just... They wanted to make a deal. They were waiting for them to come back with another offer. And the Democrats didn't. They they said they they wanted to get to this 55 percent, 45 percent split that represented how Ohioans generally vote. It's just an abdication of responsibility by five Republicans and I, I, you know, is are, are other people covering this? You know, in Northeast Ohio, people are getting the full taste of this. But in other regions of the state, is anybody reporting about this? Do we know? I mean, I, I know the dispatch put up a story late yesterday. I don't think it was as detailed as what we have. But I still haven't seen the kind of groundswell, grassroots furor 
that you're seeing over the school board races. And maybe once this election is over, well, so if the election is over, that means they'll, they'll have missed another congressional redistricting deadline, right? But maybe then people will start paying attention to really how bad this is. Okay, it's good stuff. Check it out on cleveland.com. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How did the Ohio Health Department come to the rescue of the many parents who have been forced to stay home with quarantine students who are exposed to the coronavirus? Leila Tassi, I'm of a mixed mind on this. Part of me, me thinks too. that the original quarantine rules were about safety. Part of me thinks that they put those quarantine rules in place to browbeat parents into accepting mask wearing. Yes. So is the science... Which I think are both good things, to be honest. <laughs> but is the science... <laughs> that they're using to change the policy sound. So why don't you start with how, how are they changing it? The, the Ohio Department of Health announced that, that, well, they say that there's evidence showing that with masks, there is a very low risk that a student who develops COVID-19 will transmit it to other students, given all the other controlled, you know, all the other controls in the environment of, of the school. So they announced new quarantine guidelines Monday called Masks to Stay, and tests to play. And these guidelines allow kids who've been exposed to COVID to stay in school unless they're experiencing symptoms or have tested positive. They're not orders. It's up to each district whether to adopt them. Currently, the guidelines say students have to go home for seven days if they were exposed, if they're unvaccinated, and also had not been consistently wearing a mask. But under masks to stay, you can stay in the classroom if you wear a mask for 14 days after the last date of exposure. Uh, you have to monitor for COVID symptoms, isolate and get tested if you start to develop symptoms. And if, if they don't develop any symptoms and test negative for COVID-19 between days five and seven, the students and staff can, can discontinue masks at seven days. If you choose not to have a test, you have to wear the mask for 14 days. So, you know, they, and also, you know, there are similar guidelines around playing sports after COVID exposure. This is the test to play portion of the guidelines. If student athletes want to continue participating in sports and extracurriculars, they have to get tested after they've been exposed to COVID. The, the child would have to test again between days five and seven following that initial notification. If they're negative, they can go back to their normal activities. And it has to be the kind of test that's proctored or observed. It can't be one of those at home tests that you take on your own. So all these details are in Julie Washington's story in Cleveland.com. But I'm with you. I, I don't I want to see this evidence that they're saying uh, supports supports this shift in policy. Well, but you could also argue that the guidelines before were pretty draconian. Like if your kid gets exposed, you've got to stay home and you've got to take care of your kid. And that, had, that that was horrifying to a lot of people because they, they've got to work. Well, and it, it, it was going to cripple their work life. Except, and, and except it was, you didn't have to if your kid was wearing a mask. You know, I feel like up well, until this change right. in the order. The no, no, but, but that's the point. I did, did they put that policy in place to scare parents into making their kids wear a mask? Know. Look, if your kid doesn't wear a mask, you could be sitting at home for a week with your kid. Can, you both have kids. Wouldn't that work on you? <laughs> oh, it is terrifying to think of what's, what could happen. And, and I do believe that the, it's been confusing for a lot of parents. And my one caveat here is lunchtime. Because they take off their mask to eat and the yes. kids have been eating at desks spread out three feet. But I know kids that have had to quarantine for a week because they were next to a kid who got 
COVID. And even if they had a negative test, they were told they still had to stay out of school for seven days, which does not seem fair. Well, you're both parents. Do you do you favor this new policy or do you prefer the no. old one? I, I prefer the old one because I feel that up until this change, the stringent quarantine rules gave school districts cover with angry anti-mask parents. Districts could say, we're continuing our mask policy because the state says that without masks, a COVID exposure in school means an automatic quarantine. Now the state's saying, hey, if you didn't wear a mask and got COVID, no problem. Just stay in school and wear a mask for seven days and it will make it more <laughs> difficult. It'll make it more difficult for school districts to justify their everyday masking policies to this angry mob of parents who want well, to be done with masks. And the good news is that experts are predicting that the approval of the kids vaccine is going to oh, come God. probably next week or the week after. So oh. with any luck, you'll be able to get your kids vaccinated and then you won't have these fears anymore. Laura. I was just going to say, Layla makes a really good point. And, and I don't know what was not working so much before. I'm, Oh, I know what it was. Parents, parents didn't want to be home with their kids. I mean, well, I put a that... mask on your kid and send yeah. them to school with a mask because that is the thing that gets you out of having to quarantine if there's been an exposure. You, that your kid was protected. I don't I'm know, so but there's a bunch of kid. <laughs> there's a bunch of parents that consider that the like muzzling. You know, I mean, you've oh, heard all this please. stuff. Yeah, so, of, course. Anyway. of course. I know I'm it is bad though when they go home for a week or 14 days that there isn't anything that. You can like help your, it, it is up to you as a parent. You get like their assignments and then you got to figure it out. There's no, there's no instruction. Right. Which was kind of like blackmail to get your, you to get your kid to wear a mask. So I, look, it's, it's an interesting quandary, but the vaccine is coming soon and this may be more of a moot point. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How can East Cleveland, Lorraine, and Youngstown school districts break free of the yoke of state control after years of failure on state report cards? Lisa Garvin, state control doesn't work. <laughs> These school districts did any better when the state took them over than before. And it feels like the state's just trying to figure out a way out of this quagmire. Well, I, and I hope that they do because uh, Lorraine, Youngstown, and East Cleveland have been under the yoke of state control and, and been very unhappy about it. Basically what happens once you get state control, they appoint the state appoints the CEO to run your district. The CEO is over the school superintendent, doesn't answer to the local school board, but they can make all kinds of changes. They can fire people. They can do all kinds of things. Local districts were not happy with that. So currently the current state control program says that these schools must get a C grade on their state report card for one year after being on state control or, you know, two plus years, they have to be above an F grade. Now the new one allows these districts to create a three-year improvement plan, which they've already done. If they uh, get through most of the goals in their improvement plan, they will be released from state control. These uh, plans are currently at the Department of Education. They're reviewing these plans and should have an answer by the end of this week. Um, they can request revisions to these improvement plans and then the schools must respond to these revisions within 15 days. So yes, it gives them an out, but there are concerns. There are some people say that these improvement plans submitted by the schools set a very low bar. There are others that say, well, you didn't give us enough funding to help them get out of this, but at least this is a way out. I mean, they, they can, you know, produce this plan. And, but interestingly enough, 
Lorraine and East Cleveland, as part of their improvement plans, they want to keep the current CEO as their superintendent, which seems kind of, you know, if they were unhappy, why are they keeping the person? Who knows? I don't know. I, it seems like a quandary. I mean, the, with with state control, nothing's gotten better. The, no. the, the grades haven't increased. The students aren't doing better. So you you could argue that this whole state control issue was dumb. On the other hand, it seems like this is a massive cop out. So, OK, you'll get out of it and you'll be back to where you were, which was failing your children miserably because you're an F school. There's nothing in this that improves the education. And, and I would think that the state, instead of looking for a way just to get ah, we don't want to be in charge of these schools anymore, they'd be thinking about the kids. What's going to be done in East Cleveland? to help the kids get a better education. Nobody's talking about that. Right. And of course, these grades, these state report card grades will no longer be letter grades after next year. They'll be starred grade. You know, they'll get from one to five stars. Um, but because these three school districts kind of, you know, buck the yoke of this a little bit, there is a moratorium. They haven't put any other schools under state control. And that more, there were two moratoriums. Uh, the last one expires uh, the 22-23 school, you know, so they have a whole nother year to decide whether they want to put under other schools under state control. But Chris, I think you're right. I think they're like, this was a big old quagmire and we want to back out is it, but still leaving kids behind. It, it's kind of sad. Right. I mean, think about it. The state school board spent four hours talking about getting rid of a resolution opposing racism in a mind boggling vote. But they're not figuring out a way to help the students who are in bad school districts. Something wrong with this picture. You are listening to This Week in the CLE. How many cities in Cuyahoga County will choose mayors a week from today? Laura Johnston, there's a whole lot of them, including my town of Cleveland Heights, which will elect its first ever strong mayor after 100 years of having a different form of government. Right. So there are 22 races, which I did think seemed like a lot, considering considering there's 57 municipalities in Cuyahoga County. There are no incumbents in four races. So that's a completely open seat, including in your town in Cleveland Heights. So this Cleveland Heights has 44,000 residents, $52 million annual budget, payroll operation of 450 employees. And this mayor is going to get paid $115,000. So this is a big job. And it I don't remember how many years voters changed the city form of government, but this will be interesting. Khalil Sarin is a policy advisor for county council. He's served on city council since 2015. He came in second in the primary, and he's facing Barbara Danforth, the former head of the YWCA of Greater Cleveland, and she's a legal counsel for the Cuyahoga County Department of Children and Family Services. So, I mean, those are both, they seem like super qualified candidates. So that'll be an interesting race to watch. Um, Caitlin Durbin and Cameron Fields looked at a bunch of races across the county. Parma Heights has four candidates running, all of whom, well, most of whom have a lot of experience in the city government already. North Olmsted, Kevin Kennedy is seeking an unprecedented fourth term. He's facing off against the city council president, Nicole Daly-Jones. Yeah, it's a, it's a bunch of races that, that uh, they laid out. They got that together in pretty quick fashion. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if we have a new crop of leaders. We know we'll have some, as you pointed out, but it'll. Uh, but how many is remains to be seen. Can I add one interesting um, tidbit? There are a couple pay hikes on the ballot. East Cleveland and Seven Hills want to pay their their mayors more. East Cleveland wants city council members to their salary to jump to twenty thousand dollars from forty five hundred, and the mayor from. 
Our mayor's going to go up to about uh, 65,000, I think. And then in Seven Hills, they want to bump the annual salary from 14,000 to 40,000. They've tried that before. We'll see how that goes. The one interesting thing is I didn't see a single tax increase on the ballot in Cuyahoga County. A bunch of renewals, but no increase. And I think that's because schools are making do with the stimulus money they've got. At least that's the explanation of my own town because we had a levy fail in the spring. So nobody's having to decide if they want to pay more money, except to their mayors. I don't know how East Cleveland can afford to give raises. They're broke. It also is going to create a more entrenched government that will resist merging because the political leaders won't want to give up their their pay. So it, well, it just... and their primary in September where they voted on mayoral candidates and city council candidates, I mean, it was something like less than 10% of the people in East Cleveland voted. So I don't know what the turnout's going to be in the general and who's going to vote on that. Okay. Check out the story on cleveland.com. It's this week in the CLE. Why is a political action committee that was created to support incumbent Cleveland City Council members donating to someone in another race while not providing help to all of the incumbents on City Council? Leila Tassi, the the changes that have been made to this fund over the last decade or so are head scratchers. It's not being used for what it was created for. It seems like it's being used to curry political favor. Yes, indeed. You know the pattern. The pattern of Kevin Kelly using the council leadership fund to support incumbents who publicly endorse his bid for mayor seemed to continue with this most recent campaign finance filing last week. But in addition to the donations to a handful of his council colleagues, the PAC that Kelly has controlled up until pretty recently had also given $1,500 to County Councilwoman Yvonne Conwell, who isn't even running for re-election this year. But of course... She endorsed Kevin Kelly for mayor. And that seems to be the, you know, the the common denominator between all the people who have who have uh, received money from the council leadership fund. Conwell, who is married to Kevin Conwell, who is a city councilman, is is the only county council person who whose district falls entirely within the city borders. So courting her endorsement can certainly be seen as a pretty strategic move for Kevin Kelly. Um, you know, as you mentioned, this pack is traditionally used to help incumbent council members get reelected, but it hasn't always been used that way. Council presidents have long played favorites with this money. They've given it to to those who are supportive of their own legislative agendas. But this really is the first time I can recall a council president running for mayor and giving only to those candidates who support that campaign. And and now we're seeing many council members going without funding from the pack at all while the money flows to a county council member? I mean, it's eyebrow-raising, to say the least. Yeah, it, it's kind of a surprise to see that. And we should point out, Kevin Conwell also got money and also endorsed Indeed. Kevin Kelly. Um, we'll have to see whether this generates any votes for Kevin Kelly come a week from today. The the Have either of the people seeking the council presidency made any kind of vow to not use the fund in this kind of heavy-handed political influence way. Kerry McCormick and Blaine Griffin are both seeking the council president's position. Have we asked them, hey, if you become council president, will you use this fund as it was intended, or are you going to use it as your personal war chest? Well, I don't think the question has been put to Kerry McCormick, but we did ask Blaine Griffin that question because technically he is the one 
holding the purse strings of this pack right now. Just in, you know, in the last few weeks, we reported that Kevin Kelly had signed over that deputy treasurer position to Blaine Griffin. And so we did ask him, you know, what, what's your, how do you, how do you intend to use this pack? And he, you know, sort of, you know, he hedged, <laughs> he wasn't totally direct, but he said, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm not the kind of person who would leverage this uh, money against my enemies. I would be pretty, you know, judicious about it and pretty fair, whatever. You know, it, it wasn't very clear. But um, but yeah, I, I would be curious to hear what Kerry McCormick also, how he would answer that question, too. OK, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. We all know that people using illegal drugs are vulnerable to getting HIV so what is Case Western Reserve University doing with a $16 million federal grant that is about understanding the connection between drug use and the virus that causes AIDS? Lisa Garvin, I guess they're going deeper into the way the brain works to try and figure out these connections. Correct. They are using that $16 million grant from the National Institutes of Health to create a center of excellence to study the connection between substance abuse and HIV and AIDS. And of course, we know needle sharing among drug abusers was a huge uh, you know, factor in, in AIDS numbers. In, effect, in fact, it's the second leading cause of death among the HIV population. A third of those are multiple substance abusers, so they're using more than one thing. So this grant will focus on the biology, the physiology, even the social conditions that lead to this, this issue. They're going to be looking at white blood cell counts, which are very important if you're an HIV or AIDS patient, looking at the brain and also looking at the gut and intestinal tract. So this this is this is a big deal. I mean, this is going to be a nationally focused center of excellence. Its its results will be given out to other research institutions. Metro Health has a little hand in it because the director of clinical activity for this new center will be Ann Avery, who is currently the director of infectious disease at Metro Health. So this continues a long history by case of, you know, helping AIDS patients. They were probably among the first hospitals back in 1982 that even agreed to treat AIDS patients. This is back when people were still calling it Kaposi's sarcoma. They really didn't know what it was. And they're also one of 17 uh, centers of excellence for AIDS research uh, you know, by the NIH. So yeah, this is, this is exciting stuff. I think this is a population of HIV that's been ignored for a while, and we need to learn more about it. Yeah, it's great to see more and more of that research money coming into Cleveland. The healthcare industry is our biggest. And with the clinic and UH and Case and Metro Health doing all this research in different areas, it really puts us on the map. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is Cuyahoga County Executive Armin Budish drilling down on his plan to cut positions at the jail? Laura Johnston, this didn't make sense to me when it started. It doesn't make sense to me now. He's completely throwing the whole purpose of budgets out the window in a drive, I guess, to look like the county has a surplus. I guess. And he's fighting county council on it. So Budish wants to fund the jail staff level at up to 650 corrections officer. That's an increase of about 100 over current levels, short of the 725 officers authorized. And although Sheriff Christopher Villain says he doesn't consider that a reduction in force, remember who he answers to. He answers to Budish. And the department heads, this is happening across county government. This is not just happening in the jail. Budish wants to not fund positions that are vacant. Um, county council has repeatedly questioned Budish over this. They say it's not right. And Budish fired back. He said that 
erroneously that he's done it in previous years and it's been approved. The thing is he's done it before, but councils never let this fly. And councilman Mike Gallagher might be the one who's standing up the most. He said, he said it was in the budget. It was not done in the budget and they didn't make the final approved version. So we are seeing council butt heads a whole lot more with Armin Budish these days. Well, and, and you, you know, you said he did it erroneously. You know, I would argue he lied. He knows what happened before and he's trying to bamboozle them like, hey, hey, we've done this before. Why are you just raising hell now? Thank God Gallagher's there to say, no, 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 no. We raised hell last time. You can't do this. Look, people should understand the budget is the controlling document of government. If you don't budget for positions, you're not supposed to have those positions. Lots of places have vacancies. And during COVID, a lot of agencies allowed vacancies to sit because they weren't able to do this, the same amount of work. I know the prosecutor's office has a bunch of vacancies that they need to fill to process a whole bunch of cases. You can't just summarily wipe those off and say, oh, yeah, yeah, you can hire later. It doesn't matter if it's in the budget. It does matter if it's in the budget. It's right, always not- mattered you're not going to spend more than your budget allows. That's that's the whole point of a budget. But so far, we're not seeing a lot of county department heads pushing back on this. But, um, that, well, you know, we I, talked before on this podcast that, about hiring. Yeah. I think Budish is worried about attacks. He's he's apparently going to run for re-election because he's not reading the tea leaves very well. And Lee Weingart, the Republican that's running against him, is making a big issue of Armin Budish's budgeting. He believes there's a lot of fat in the budget. And I, I my bet is, is that Budish is trying to jury rig this budget to look better than it actually is by wiping out positions and then saying, well, just fill them off budget. It doesn't make any sense. It'll be interesting to see how this one ends up. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. That does it for a Tuesday. We'll be heading back into election talk tomorrow when Seth Richardson is here for the final Wednesday appearance before Election Day. We'll see if we can get him to predict what he thinks will happen. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. 